Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Look at the first seven verses of this chapter. While you're doing that, I just want to encourage you. I know we've had sign-ups. We've talked about this Harvest Festival. um, And I'd like to just encourage you in that to be a part of it. Um, You know, we don't celebrate Halloween. Halloween is, is, in all honesty, it's a pagan, uh, pagan holiday. And we want to bring light to, to a dark world. We realize and, and just know that we have a lot of people who don't know that it's that, right? And so, but they'll be out um, this night, right, to get candy. That's the, the drive behind it for children, for sure. And parents definitely don't want to see their kids cry. So there's that, right? <clears throat> um, I was speaking with a pastor in Atwater this week, and, and we were talking about this thing. They do something uh, similar, and it's just a, you know a, a safe place for families, right? And that's what we're doing. And he said, of all the, the the searches on their website, this one page that's up for a little bit more than a month, talking about their harvest vessel, has more hits than anything else on their website throughout the year. I'm like, are you kidding me, right? And he said, no, because families are looking for a safe place to bring their children. And he goes, they will search that out. And he goes, and your, and your goal, right, is simply to have a place where you can rub elbows with the community because this is the one day out of the year they'll come on your campus. So that's what we want to do. Provide a safe place, uh, fill them up with candy, let the parents deal with the kids, right? That's not our, that's on them. Uh, but we want to create a safe place, uh, and that's, that's the drive behind it. So uh, there's, if you, you know, we're doing this year, I don't think we've ever done as a trunk or treat. There's, there's a, a, f- a little form out there for guidelines regarding that. Uh, we want to keep it fra- uh, family uh, friendly and uh, nothing scary, and we want those things to, to not be there. Uh, so please, if you're planning on doing that, there's a form out there to, for you to check out. And also on that table out there is an area for you to sign up, Right? Everyone said, I'm going to start again with this whole announcement. No, I'm kidding. No, if you can, please, please, please support. Please come and just be a light that shines, love the people, because uh, we realize they, they don't know that they don't know, right, on some of those things. And, of course, that, it, all of us fall in that boat at different times. But uh, in regards to this, this day, um, they don't see it as that. Uh, we're in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, and, and uh, really the whole chapter of, of chapter 7 is where we're at, um, deals with Christian marriage and singleness. And so I've creatively called my message this morning, creation, or, uh, Christian marriage and singleness, but I called it part 1. And uh, we'll kind of work through this chapter, we'll look at some different areas. I hope this morning that um, you, you don't feel, if this doesn't speak to you, you don't turn your mind off. I believe God's Word always speaks to all of us. It challenges us at different stages in our lives, uh, and there's definitely good truth here. Um, and, and I also realize that, that you know, as we come to this passage, there's, there's moments as Christians we say you know, the value of marriage, right, and, and pursuing marriage and, and working through difficult times is contrary to the world. The world just says, you know, hey, if it's not working out, uh, just bail, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the, maybe not the phrases they would say, but close, something close to it. And it's becoming more increasing in our society that uh, if you're committed to a relationship, committed to marriage, uh, committed to the Christian values of marriage, to the intimacy of marriage, um, you're going to begin more and more to be seen as something, uh, you know, out of date, right? Archaic, 
old-fashioned, crusty. I don't know. I was going to think of something else. Um, and, and, and that just seems to be the case. And ever more so, we see, and, and you'll see this here in a little in a moment, there's parallels of, of the Corinthians and what they're experiencing. Even though they're, they're approaching it from a different road, they have very similar ideas about what our world has in regards to marriage. Um, and I hope you're, you're okay with, as you pursue marriage, as you pursue your spouse, as you understand it biblically, um, that you're okay being the one who looks odd, right, in the contrast to the world. It reminds me of, of uh, the story of the lady who was hosting a dinner party, and uh, she had made spaghetti and had left it out on the counter for quite some time, and she was really concerned. Guests were, were close to showing up, and she thought, I don't know if this is still good. And so she called Poison Control and told them the situation. I have this dinner party. Uh, the spaghetti sauce has been out on the counter all day. Is it still good? Uh, they recommended reboiling the sauce. Not having enough time to do that, she pressed on and said, Well, we're just going to have to go forward. The guests show up, they're enjoying their meal, and then there's a phone call. This is back when, right, they didn't have cell phones, and someone picks up the line and, and answers it and uh, announces to everybody out loud, out loud, Hey, poison control called, and they want to know how the spaghetti turned out. <laughs> <clears throat> Sometimes it just feels like that, doesn't it, right? All right, I'm exposed. And I hope as we work through this passage, uh, you will see the benefits of, of, of pursuing this. You know, there is intimacy in the, in the Trinity. There is uh, definitely throughout Israel's history, throughout the church, how the, uh, the marriage of husband and wife illustrate Christ in the church, the foundation of the family. Uh, all of it is stressed throughout Scripture. So I encourage you, regardless of where you're at this morning, uh, some of you might say we've been married for a, a lengthy amount of time. Some are, are not that long, and some are like, you know what? It's by the grace of God I didn't kill my spouse this morning, um, wherever you might be. Um, that sounded a little rough, didn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, wherever you might be this morning, I just encourage you, listen to what God says, his seriousness about marriage um, and the importance of marriage. And Paul says this, and again, this is going to be, we'll focus on what is happening in the Corinthian church and what he's responding to. So I'd like to read the first seven verses. And he says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife, the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you, Beyond, because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in, one in this manner and another in that. Let me offer a brief prayer. Lord, thank you again for this time you've given to us. I pray, God, for... Uh, eyes to be opened and ears that are open and tuned into what uh, your word has for us today. I ask 
that the Holy Spirit would give us insights, allow us to learn and uh, apply it to our lives. And Lord, as always, get me out of the way that every thought and life be fixed upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A uh, word of warning this morning, as you've, you've surely you've picked up from the text, I might be using the word sex quite a bit through this. Uh, hopefully that doesn't um, offend you. My goal is not to do that, but uh, just to get at what the text is, is communicating to us. Uh, the heart of, of marriage, the institution of marriage, is all from the Lord. It begins right in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Christ brings that right into the Gospels. And of course, the, the apostles have written extensively uh, about the union of marriage. And we see this throughout Scripture. It's very important uh, to the Lord. As I said earlier, you know, we see the, the intimacy, if you will, of the Trinity, the closeness of the Trinity focused on each other. We see that demonstrated even last week in the message as, as your body, that is a very important, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word that Paul uses there is, is the holy of holies. The closeness to God is was what the word he uses for your body that houses, if you will, right, the, the Holy Spirit. And the temple, of course, is for worship. We see the focus of worship. We see the focus of worship in this text. Uh, Christ to be at the center of the marriage. All of this is here. And it's near and, of course, dear to God. Union in, uh, in marriage between a husband and wife is precious to the Lord. It's important to the Lord. And so as we come to this, this, this passage this morning, uh, we really see that Paul is responding, and it's kind of my first point, Paul is responding to something that this correspondence they've had, and he addresses it, and the, kind of the rest of my points kind of follow from the first one. It's almost as if the first point is the foundation, and the rest come from it. But as we look at marriage, Christian marriage, and singleness, uh, we come to my first point, which I'm saying marriage uh, or is, rather, if you're in a marriage, we are to maintain purity in your marriage. And of course, we could say maintain purity in your singleness. Of course, that applies to the individual and in your marriage. Paul says this in verse 1, uh, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now here we see this correspondence. There's some type of exchange, right, going back and forth from the Corinthians to Paul. And, and they are writing back, and he, they have mentioned to him that this has been our instruction for a man not to touch a woman. Now, it's important to understand that here, and maybe you're, I'm not sure if your translation says it a little different, uh, but the, the euphemism here is that they are talking about relationship, specifically a sexual one. The early church understood it this way. Uh, linguistically, it kind of plays out this way. This is the foundation of what Paul is saying. They are telling, and just so I set the stage for you, they are saying and writing to Paul and saying, look, we have communicated to the others, some people within the context of this church, of saying that to other married couples, they should not be engaging in this activity. That's what's happening. Now, I do want to say a note here. That if we understand it this way, which is how the early church understood it in the context of marriage, to understand this kind of relationship, that it might be easy for some who are single and not yet married to say, well, as long as I don't do that, I'm okay. That is not the case either. right? We want to be sure that we do not justify any type of immoral activity. 
wisdom from this, I think, as you turn to Song of Solomon's, where the Shulamite woman is encouraging and telling uh, the daughters of Jerusalem, and this is in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It's very easy for, for humans, since God has made us this way, that we get to a certain point, and if you're in a certain situation, it's very difficult to turn that off. So we don't want to place ourselves in a situation where we might compromise our purity. Paul touches on in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, where he says, "For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality." So just as a note, even though he's not addressing it typically, we've heard it said this way. We want to make sure that all the the rest of Scripture speaks to our purity, and we maintain this. Remember, Paul has just told us, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he comes to this, and this is the situation. You have some within the, the Corinthian church who are saying, even though they are married, they should abstain from uh, sexual intercourse, and they should uh, leave this alone, because the body and the thoughts of the body right, have nothing to do with this. They have a stoic idea of philosophy. The body attains to nothing. The world is of nothing. So therefore, we should not do it. That's what they are saying. Unfortunately, in the context of marriage, some are saying, you know what? I won't spend this kind of relationship with my spouse. However, in chapter 6, he has told us they are going and uniting with a prostitute. That's the situation that is happening. And so Paul is stepping into this. And they're kind of hoping, to some extent, that Paul will agree with them. Agree with us, ratify this decision, and give us some some qualification on this. And to a certain extent, he does, of course, agree. We should not go to a prostitute. However, this is why the rest of the passage makes sense that you are to give to your spouse. Now, I said earlier, I think by way of introduction, that there are parallels. There are parallels in what is happening in our society in this view. Now, again, the Corinthians arrive at this view a little bit differently. Right? They have a Greek kind of thinking about this. The body profits nothing. We should do nothing. That's the Stoic philosophy. Paul dealt with that in Acts chapter 17. The Epicureans and the Stoics, and they, they refer to him as a babbler. This thinking is there. And they're simply going, you know what? If the body profits nothing, I should not have this with anyone. Even within the context of marriage, unfortunately, they think if there is a need, they can satisfy it by seeking another. Doing a little bit of research, you know, I, I went to the Barna Group in 2016. They did this survey, and just so you know, this is a prevalent thinking happening in our society. Of course, arriving at it not through stoicism but other means. It says their, their conclusion to a, a statistics. They said, whereas practicing Christians still overwhelmingly tie sex to marriage, the move among the greater U.S. population, most evidently among younger generations is a delinking of marriage and sex. Sex has become less a function of procreation or an expression of intimacy, which are the two biblical categories for it, and more of a personal experience. To have sex is increasingly seen as a pleasurable and important element in the journey towards self-fulfillment. It's a snapshot of the Christian life in the world. Doing a little bit more research on this, I came across an article, just so you know, the the prevailing thinking that is happening. A lady who wrote an article entitled, Six Things You Probably Didn't Know About Christianity and Sex. Her name is Carol Cruvilla. 
I'm not sure if her last name is actually correct. But the subtitle to her article says, Christianity's history with sex is much more complicated than you might think. It's actually quite simple, right? But it's more complicated, and she makes her argument, and she goes on and she has this conclusion. It's time to get real, she says. There is no such thing as a traditional Christian sexual ethic. Now, you'd realize that statement goes against her whole premise of writing her article. So she kind of contradicts herself. But she's trying to make this point, and this is what she says. I wish I had known this earlier. The problem with teaching kids that the Bible is infallible and that Christian teaching has never changed is that the second they crack open a history book or have sex or fall in love with someone of the same gender, they carefully constructed, excuse me, the carefully constructed house of faith that they've inherited from their parents starts crumbling apart. Now you see this in the simple, what she has done in this article, she has placed a history book above scripture. She's placed sex above scripture and love above scripture. This is exactly what the Bible says. She has become an apologetic for the world. John has said in his First letter, right? In First John chapter 2, verse 15, that the world is what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is her argument. And she says once a person enjoys, in essence, the world, that Christianity is now false. The infallible word has no bearing on any of this. And within her own article, she has contradicted herself. This is the world. This is the philosophy. This is the worldview. And I would venture to say that if you watch television, you'd probably see this worldview played out in many of the television shows that are happening today. You simply go, and this is how they treat it. Sex is more important because truth, if there is truth, it's a lowercase t, and it's relative. If it feels good, do it. And you see how there's parallels here, how the 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 stoic position of these Greeks arrived at this conclusion the body counts for nothing what's the big deal so we went and we united our body with a harlot I don't see the problem the body profits nothing and Paul has been responding and saying no your body will be raised from the dead just like Jesus was there's tremendous value of your body that's why he's saying this and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit over and throughout scripture there's the drive for purity Right? To be different. And you see right away, this is the context of our world. You see what Paul is communicating in the context of this Greek world. You see that quite quickly, if you adhere to this, maintain this, and follow after this, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. So I pray and I hope that you, you understand the importance right, of marriage. It's important to God. Your body is important. It will be raised again. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So how do we go forward? And my first point really, again, is just the foundation. Purity in marriage. Purity in your life. How do we go forward? How is Paul addressing this problem? I'm glad you asked. It goes to my second point. Verse 2, invest in your marriage. Must invest in your marriage. He says, nevertheless... He's responding to what they've written to him. He says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. 
Now, my translation reads this as singular, right? There is sexual morality. The word is actually plural. He's speaking of immoralities. Plural sense, there's multiple ones. We get the idea, of course, through the, the passage we've been working through. He's referenced uh, prostitution. If you go back into early parts of chapter 6, he's referenced a, a, a history, right, of sexual immorality, things they once were and then they've come out from because they've been washed and justified and sanctified. He's speaking to all of that. There are multiple problems that are happening. And Paul has in mind here, quite simply, that, that the married couple is to avoid. I mean, if you were to boil this down, avoid any extramarital sexual activity. He says you should have. A wife is to have her husband. A husband is to have his wife. And it simply means a close relationship. And this is the foundation. This is the biblical foundation for what we talked about. It's not complicated. There are only two views of sex in the Bible. One within the context of a husband and wife in marriage, and the other is sexual immorality. That's what the Bible gives. It's quite simple. It's quite straightforward. And verse 2 makes this clear. There are a number of sexual moralities. It is plural. There's a number of them, but there is only one valid alternative, marriage. And we see just out of that the importance God has for marriage. Some wisdom from Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Apply that to your life. Marriage, now again, is, is many things for Paul. It's not just simply here. And even though this passage seems to reduce this down to this one activity, remember the Bible speaks to marriage in a much more way. But Paul is dealing with this problem. He speaks in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? There is the idea of giving and loving and pursuing that's in line with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Paul himself, moving forward, I think, in this passage, will give, he'll expand this definition a little bit more of what marriage is and how we are to operate within it and the importance of it. We realize, quite simply, right, God has given sex and Genesis chapter 2, for the intimacy of the married couple and for the procreation of life. And Paul is saying, invest in your marriage. Stay married. Pursue your spouse. Invest in this. Too often in our society, we simply say, if it's not working out, we'll go try something else. Go try someone else. It's okay. The world is going to consistently say that. It's saying it in Paul's day. It's saying it today. And the marriage and the biblical foundation is pursue, invest in your marriage, invest in your spouse. Paul again begins to, to broaden this a little bit in verses 3 through 4 when he says, um, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So cultivate selflessness in your marriage. Too often we bring selfishness into the marriage. What can I get out of this relationship? It is completely opposite in the biblical understanding. What do I give 
to my marriage. Paul says here that really that what is due, right? He uses the word give what is due, the affection that is due to your spouse. Here are the mutual duties of marriage. Now this verse, you know, often I think I've said this before, I think I'll say it again, is you know, we have this tendency to reduce this or bring this down. Maybe it's a little bit offensive to you this morning to say, man, pastor, you're really camping out on this one theme. This is exactly what Paul is driving through this passage, right? He is saying the importance of this, you would come together, and he gives reasons here in a moment why this is so important. But again, Paul's stressing, stressing to you and to I, that in marriage it's not what my spouse owes me, but what I owe my spouse. The focus is always on the other. This is opposite the world, opposite, right? The, the, the pride of life, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. What can I get? What is good for me? If it feels right, do it. This is the opposite. Paul is telling us, right, pursue the other. He's saying both have rights. Each can expect to receive some things from the other in this relationship. Both have a responsibility, to love, to cherish, to encourage. And Paul says he uses the word render. You're to give this affection. You're to render it, which is a continuous action. It's not once I got married, you know, I've got a license now. Uh, she has to clean and cook, or, or I don't have to, to work out. I don't have to shower as often, right? I've got a license. That kind of thinking has to go, right? It's continuous, Continuous selflessness. Some of you are laughing at that, right? You're like, yeah, I kind of thought that way when we got married, right? No, you need to continue to invest, continue to grow in this. It says render continual affection to your spouse. Sometimes I realize there are moments when it's like, I don't know if I love or hate my spouse at this moment, right? I remember... um, my, my mother one time telling me some years back, there's a fine line there in marriage. Understand the difference. Your love must never change. Even though there's times, I'm sure my wife would attest, I think I would rather pinch his head off, right? I know she still loves me. And Paul is saying simply this, you boil this down, I do not possess. He's not saying you possess your, your spouse like you owe me, right? I possess the body of the other. He's saying I do not have authority over my body. That's the difference. Therefore, I do not deprive, verse 5, I do not deprive. See, Scripture speaks to this, right? Again, I'm going to say this verse. Husbands, memorize this verse, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. I put it up there once. I'm going to put it up there again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loved sacrificially. Understand that's the call to you. That is what Paul is saying. Your body's not your own. I love my spouse sacrificially. Wives, the reciprocal here. Wives, submit. Ephesians 5.22. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Both this is in conjunction with what Jesus has already done. There's ever a moment where you think in your relationship, I can't love this way. Understand Jesus has done it. There's ever a moment in your relationship where you say, I cannot submit to him. Understand Jesus has done it. Both these. He has gone to the cross. He's loved us sacrificially. He has yielded to the Father, saying, Not my will, your will be done. It is not beneath us. God gives clear instruction. Marriage is to be to cultivate selflessness. 
The simple way of, of doing this is, is simply saying, don't ever stop dating your spouse. Pursue her. Often in marriage counseling, I will say, I'll ask people to tell me, tell me of your story. What is it about this person that got you down on one knee to say, will you marry me? What is it about this man who said, man, when he was on his knee, I couldn't wait. I said, yes. I think it's important you understand that you remember that. You know, on the back of, the, of our cars, typically you'll see the Santa Cruz sticker. It's not because I'm a skateboarder. It's not at all because they make skateboards. But I proposed to my wife in, in Santa Cruz at the lighthouse. And we always joke about it because we went down there, and when I proposed, she felt the ring on my hand. I had it tucked away. I thought I was being really sly about it, right, and caught her off guard. I'd already called her father. I had permission. Got down on one knee and told her that uh, we may not have, because I knew where I was heading. We may not have a lot of money, but I'll love you the rest of my life. And I said, will you marry me? I remind her of that, and I said that to her, too. You marry me. And she responded and she said, I do. And I'm like, is that the same as a yes, right? <laughs> Some years later, after we had our children, we went back to that same spot. We're showing it to our kids. And I made the kid, our kids, all three of our sons, you have to watch me kiss your mother here, right? And they were like, oh, my goodness, right? Like, this is it. This is where Team Tolbert began, right here, <laughs> right? But remember that story. And I would, I mean, would love to tell you it's, it's all been, you know, these, this wonderful right. No, it's highs and lows. We're human. We struggle with sin, isn't it? And Paul is saying cultivate in your marriage. It's not about you. It's about giving affection. It's about growing your selflessness. It's about loving your spouse. Even though when there's moments when you just, you know, it's the hardest thing to do. Understand Christ went to the cross. There's your motivation. And wives, there's time where you go, you know what? I just kind of can't believe my husband did this. Submit and trust him. Paul will take these two verses, and here I'll cite this verse in a little in a moment. He brings it all together for us, where it's this love and respect. It's this union. He's saying the same thing here. Cultivate selflessness. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? Well, in verses 5 through 6, I simply say protect your marriage. It says, do not deprive one another. Again, he's talking about this union, this marriage union. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. It says, do not deprive. The verb deprive is a disapproving word, if you will. For taking away a right that belongs to another. He's just told us, give, render affection that is due. Do not deprive that affection. James has, a, I think he explains this when he shares this, this illustration of the laborers, right? And in James chapter 5, verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. That's the idea of depriving. They are crying out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Don't cheat your spouse. Don't deprive your spouse. I know there's times that we have to work through and communicate. I'm understanding that, but do not deprive your spouse. He says the only time in Scripture, right, is for what? Fasting and prayer. 
early church had very concerned with prayer, right? You see this coming in Paul's thinking, there must be prayer. You must keep Christ at the center of your marriage. I think this is so vitally important. You know, the church needs marriages that are cultivating selflessness, that are protecting each other, that are investing in one another, are loving this way. It blesses not only your union, your marriage. It blesses if you have children. It blesses our society. It blesses the church. Often I'll tell the men in our men's study, the church needs godly men to be godly men. We need godly women to be godly women. Right? We need uh, marriages to be marriages. And we see this circle, Ephesians 5.33, I mentioned earlier, Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Paul brings that all together. So the question here I have in your outline is, how do we do that? As a married couple, you should be, A, praying together. This might be a little awkward, maybe. It might feel uncomfortable. Um, but there's simple steps to put into to action Begin right week one. Find one praise and one request. Pray together. Husbands, if you pray better than your wives, your wife feels insecure, be patient. Vice versa. Wives, if you pray better than your husband feels insecure, be patient. But come together and pray. Pray over a praise. Thank the Lord for his work. Thank for his activity. Take a request and pray about it. Let this grow throughout the month. Pretty soon it's natural. Why would we not pray together? My wife and I have prayed together every evening uh, since we've been married. Some of those prayers have not been too deep theologically, I'll be honest with you, um, but we've always connected in prayer. We've ended our day. It's been very important for us. We are the types, both of us are very much the same, that when we're frustrated, we get quiet. Right? We have a holy hush in our house when there's someone's upset. And I know at the end of that day, we're going to pray. It forces, it's forced both of us to communicate. And to simply come to the conclusion, I'm sorry. Let's pray. Let me pray for you. No, that's not how it goes. Pray together. If you're not doing it, begin it. Second thing, read and study the Bible together. Find a passage of, of Scripture. Find a, a short devotional. We do the, uh, the daily breads are out there. Grab one of those. Something you can read together. Bring Christ in the center of your life. Bring him in the center of your marriage. The Lord will bless you because of this. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, meaning God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Seek him in your marriage. Put him in there. It's okay if you feel awkward about praying or reading together or doing some type of devotion. It's okay because this relationship is different than any relationship anywhere else. There are things you can be intimate with, with your spouse, that you do not share with anyone else. And it's okay to put Christ at the, the center of your marriage, the center of your life. And he simply says this, right? Why does Paul say this? Only for a time of fasting and prayer. Only for a time focusing upon the Lord do you break from this intimacy. Why is that? So that Satan does not tempt you. You come back and it's only for a time so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul simply says he puts limits on this. Don't abstain from these relationships with your husband and wife together because there is the lack of self-control and because there is a tempter, his name is Satan. Do not deprive one another. Here's the point. Do not put your spouse at the disposal of the tempter. Why should there be intimacy in your, in your marriage 
because Satan will eventually tempt. And simply right here, and we hear this unfortunately in our society, well, there was lack of self-control. I'm not content in my marriage. I'm not being satisfied, fulfilled, whatever word you want to use. That's what Paul is saying. It's good for you to have Christ in the center. It's good to come together and pray. It's good to come together and fast, but only for a time. He doesn't make it a command. He says it's a concession. Why? Because there's a tempter, and he's active, and he would love to wreck your marriage. Protect it. Build into it. Invest into it. Cultivate selflessness. I don't think any one of us would say that a strong marriage doesn't benefit children or society or the church. My last point here is we see that we are to maintain the purity. It's the foundation to your marriage or to invest in it, cultivate selfishness, protect it, and lastly, understand that marriage is a gift. He says in verse 7, For I wish that all men were, even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul is is saying here that that God's gift is marriage. There's also a gift of being single. Now he's not referring to singleness as such. You know, there's there's what he's talking about is is as I am, is those who are free from, from the sexual desire. That's what he's saying, a celibate person. Paul is saying that position is a gift of God. God gives that gift to some. He's not saying that singleness is. He's not saying this is a requirement. He's been telling us the absolute opposite. He'll say that there are benefits to being single. He says in verse 35, And this I say to your own prophet, and that I may put a, may not, excuse me, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. There's benefit to being singleness, but this is not what he's pushing. There's an idea in the church that those who, those who can stay single are much more spiritual. We can do more work. Maybe that's what they're saying. But that's not the case, and that's not what Paul is saying. There's another view of saying, well, if you, if you get married, that's just simply a, a compromise because you couldn't handle it, so you couldn't handle being celibate in this way, and that's not Paul's point. He's not saying or to reduce this as a principle or, or, or carte blanche across the board. That's not his point at all. He's simply to say marriage is a gift. Understand that if you're married today, it is a gift. God has gifted you with someone in your life to share in this way that with your marriage, you can pursue the highs, the lows, the difficulties, all the joys. You can, you can demonstrate to others this wonderful mystery of Christ in the church. You can love, you can receive love. It's to be radically different. It's not complicated. That's what the world may tell us. So by way of application of this message, I simply have four things that I think it's important you understand about this. The first one is what I just mentioned. Both marriage and celibacy are gifts. They're a calling. It's a gift from God. Despite Paul's own preference for celibacy, he certainly doesn't raise it to a higher standard spiritually. Because he's this way, he doesn't say it's better. Second thing is that sex is God's gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. God made us this way. God designed and gave sex as a gift that we share intimacy and for the procreation of the planet. Third, it's important to understand that sex is the privilege and duty of both spouses. 
You know, often we, they have this thought, maybe this thought is in, you've heard it before, but it's, you know, sex is the, the privilege of the husband and the duty of the wife, and this is not what the Bible is teaching. There is affection that is due simply because you are in this union. And if we treat it this way, then, then this genuineness of love and unity, it becomes abusive. And that leads to my last point. Sex must never be used as a means of manipulation or abuse. There should never be a moment where we, we hold this back or use it to leverage some type of decision from our spouse. All of this abuses the biblical teaching on marriage. So it's important. I just encourage each and every one of you, if you're married today, invest in your marriage. Grow in purity. There's moments through this passage where maybe you're feeling, you know what, I've, I've blown it. We've blown it. Well, stop looking at that. Confess that if it's sin. Start moving forward. Remember the context of what Paul is, is writing. Remember this Corinthian church. Remember the list. He said, some of you were this. You were washed. Remember that. You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. Your body, right, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Begin to understand that this is new teaching for them. As they received this letter, there were corrections being made. This morning, if you're hearing this, you're saying, I've been out of line. Well, then make the corrections. Come in line. Repent of your sins and start following. Start investing in your marriage. Build into purity. Put Christ at the center of your life, the center of your home, the center of your marriage. Pray together. Work on it. If it feels awkward, it's okay. Keep moving forward. Keep following Jesus. Keep trusting him. Keep loving. Give your affection. If you, don't have a, if you have a spouse this morning that doesn't reciprocate with this kind of affection, keep giving your affection. That is the command. Stay married. Paul is going to stress that through the rest of this chapter. Stay as you are. Stay as you are. Keep praying. Keep focusing. Keep loving. Build a strong marriage. That it becomes an example. Exemplifies Christ and his church. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the truth of your word this morning. Thank you for this word that challenges us in our own marriages. Lord, it's easy just in life. It's easy for us to think about the failures. And maybe even this morning, many of us are thinking about that. So Lord, as we think about those failures, those sins, we want to take a moment and confess them. God, forgive us. Cleanse us. Bring us back to the moment, Lord, where, where Paul has encouraged this church. Let your word encourage us this morning that you have washed us. You've justified us. You have sanctified us. You've set us apart to be holy people. Follow after you and not this world. The world says, if it feels good, go and do it. But your word says, let's do it your way. Lord, you have designed this. You have created us. So, Lord, help us to be obedient to your word, to apply the truths of your word to our life, to our marriages. Help us to strengthen and encourage one another and those that we might know who are struggling. Lord, let us come with a word of truth, a word that there is hope, a word of redemption, a word of forgiveness. Open eyes and ears. Lord, bless marriages this morning, regardless of where they might be. The marriage is strong, Lord. Keep it strong, please, for your glory. If the marriage is strong, Lord, intervene. Intervene with your power, your presence, your might. You can soften the hardest heart. You can change life. You are God. 
And we pray, Lord, that the marriages, God of this church, would glorify you and you alone. So, Lord, I pray for the husbands. Let them see the, the, the call to love sacrificially, to give of their lives, to not be self-focused, to be selfless, pursue their wives. I pray for wives this morning, Lord, to submit to their husbands, to have an attitude of what that means, understand it biblically. Christ submitted to your word. Lord, let us all submit to the authority of your word and bless these marriages. Lord, bless the, the, the difficult times, the struggles. Help them, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to continue to keep moving forward. Give grace. Let your grace be sufficient. Bring mercy. Bring understanding. Bring clarity. But, Lord, bring, bring these marriages. Bring them together. Strengthen them for your glory. And we thank you, God, for your activity, your concern, your love for us. And we pray this. God, we pray this all in the wonderful, wonderful name. The name that is above all names. The name of Jesus. His name we pray. Amen.